Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Naomi. I support this program, and I hope you do, too. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Call it weather whiplash. Recent annual extremes seesaw from droughts to floods to fires to violent storms and create major hazards. What could be next? The main risk is that there will be a really active hurricane season in the Atlantic. And of course, as time goes on, the risk of one or more of those making landfall and causing damage is real. Also, the bird everyone loves to hate. I don't know anybody that likes magpies. To wake up every morning to screeching magpies. I'm not sure I would hate them as much if it weren't for the fact that so many other people seem to hate them. But some ornithologists say magpies get a bad rap. The birds and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. At the beginning of May this year, the Santa Ana winds whipped Southern California into the fire season six months earlier than usual, with thousands of homes threatened just north of Los Angeles. As firefighters battled the blazes, it might have seemed the U.S. was in for another record year of wildfires. But in fact, so far this year, America's seen the least number of wildfires in a decade. And while the decade is the hottest on record, the rate of average temperature rise has actually slowed. So what's going on? To sort all this out, we turn to Kevin Trenberth, senior scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado. Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm glad to be here, Steve. So last year, the Mississippi was so dry, barges couldn't float. But this year, there are record floods along the Mississippi. Uh, How do you explain this? This is not unusual these days. You know, the climate overall is changing because of human influences. But we still have seasons. We still have weather. When the weather actually happens... What we're seeing is that it tends to be a bit more extreme than it used to. We get stronger uh, heat waves, uh, a greater risk of drought and, and wildfire. And then on the other side of the coin, when it does rain, it pours. I believe you call this weather whiplash? That's one of the phenomena or even uh, climate uh, whiplash, where there's a big change from one month to another or especially one year to another. And we've seen that in spades over the last uh, two or three years in the United States. In 2011, Texas was the driest on record. At the same time, it was extraordinarily wet from uh, Missouri up through the Ohio River Valley to New England, the wettest year on record. And then, uh, and that was a time when the Mississippi was in flood. 2012 was the the dryness extended across the whole nation for the whole year, the hottest year on record for the United States by far. And, uh, you know, now it's tended to turn around again. The changes have been even more dramatic in other parts of the world, especially in places like Australia, where they've gone from prolonged drought to uh, record flooding and then back to um, record-breaking heat and wildfires uh, there past summer, this uh, January extending all the way down to Tasmania. And so uh, we're seeing this also in, in Europe and, and Asia as well. And so this, is, this seems to be one of the characteristics of the weather patterns these days. So I hear that the Atlantic is warmer than usual this year. Could that make for more superstorms like Sandy? 
Uh, it can certainly make for more vigorous tropical storms and, and an active hurricane season. Sandy, of course, became a hybrid storm and was a uh, started off as a hurricane, but uh, was a very special kind of storm that is relatively rare. As the hurricane moved north, it developed extratropical characteristics and um, emerged with uh, what was originally a snowstorm back in the Colorado Rockies and developed into a storm that's double the size of a normal hurricane. We're now at a record 400 parts per million of CO2. That's the most pervasive global warming gas related to human activity. But what about these numbers, uh, Kevin Trenberth, that show that the rate of global warming seems to be slowing? Average temperatures in the atmosphere, at least, aren't rising as fast as they were. Well, firstly, from the standpoint of carbon dioxide, the rate of increase of carbon dioxide has not slowed in spite of things like the Kyoto Protocol. And so carbon dioxide continues to rise. And if we look at then where the extra energy that is available as a consequence of these increases in these uh, heat-trapping gases in the atmosphere then what is showing up in the last decade is that while the 2000s are the warmest decade on record, the rate of increase has not been as great because a lot more heat seems to be going into the ocean. And so more heat is being carried down by changes in the ocean currents into deeper parts of the ocean. So the planet is still warming. It's being manifested in different ways. And this varies over time largely as far as we can tell for natural reasons. It can stay this way for a decade or maybe even two decades. But uh, when it gets out of that particular pattern, suddenly there can be really large jumps in the, in the global mean surface temperature and global warming comes back in a way that really affects us uh, right at the surface here rather than uh, deeper in the ocean. So, in other words, when the Earth has done this phase of putting the extra energy into the oceans, we might see kind of a sudden snap in the surface temperatures where we are. We can certainly see that, and there have been a number of instances like that. There's been at least three examples of that uh, during the last uh, 40 years, which has been the main time when global warming has really kicked in. Kevin Trenberth, from where you stand there at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, what do you see for the U.S. in terms of weather going ahead from now, this year or perhaps longer? The main risk is that there will be a really active hurricane season in the Atlantic. And of course, as time goes on, the risk of one or more of those making landfall and, and causing damage is real. So in 2011, we had a tropical storm or hurricane Irene that went all the way up into Vermont and caused widespread flooding. Uh, last year, Superstorm Sandy. And, you know, the odds are we'll, we may get one of those, perhaps uh, another one in the, in the same general category. Uh, I suspect that there will be some other place around the world which will be a real hot spot. 2010, it was the Russian heat wave, and, and we've had um, alternating hot spots in Australia and the, the United States. This year, perhaps it's uh, the United States' turn not to be in the eye of uh, uh, all of this really extreme weather as much as it has been in the past two, perhaps. Kevin Trenberth is a senior scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder. Thank you so much for taking the time. You're most welcome. Research at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology shows that time for effective action to control heat-trapping gases is running out. 
And to illustrate the risks, the MIT Global Change Program built a wheel of chance based on the results of their climate models. It looks something like Vanna White would spin on the Wheel of Fortune, and the scientists call it the greenhouse gamble. When you spin it, if you get unlucky, you get high temperatures. If you get uh, lucky, you get low temperatures. And it really signifies what we as humanity are doing. We're spinning a wheel by putting emissions up into the atmosphere, and we don't, at this point, know where it was stopped. John Riley is an MIT economist and co-author of the MIT Climate Change Modeling Study. I visited him at MIT to try my luck at the greenhouse gamble. First, we spun the wheel to see how much hotter the planet might get by the end of the century if we do nothing to cut our greenhouse gas emissions. Okay, you've landed on the thing that says five to six degrees centigrade, a pie wedge that says that. That's actually about the median forecast of what we're getting. In the previous work, we were thinking the median was more two and a half degrees, and the highest, highest amounts we got approached five degrees. So now we have more than half of the wheel at above five degrees. So you know that is really a, a hot planet. <laughs> so what's happened to change your estimate of what's going on? Is it that we've dumped more carbon into the atmosphere since you first did the studies, or are you getting better in your studies, or or what? Well, since it's only been a few years since we've done this, it's not the fact that we've put in that much more emissions in the meantime, though we have been pumping it out at a quite a high rate. It's that when we look at the trends and try to do forecasts, it's clear that China and India and developing countries emissions growth is very rapid. And then our estimates of how much heat would be up, taken up by the ocean have uh, been reduced. So the slower uptake of heat by the ocean leaves more in the atmosphere. So we were surprised because no one of these effects are very big, but they interact multiplicatively. And unfortunately, they all went in the wrong direction. So that's resulted in this very much larger increase. All right, let's give it another spin here. Oh, this is not good. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is all the way up to six to seven degrees, assuming that we do nothing about climate change. So this is a really severe uh, outcome. You know, th combine that with seven degrees, it's a 20% chance. And a 20% chance of going that high is a pretty large risk of pretty catastrophic results. All right. Now let's give it a spin based on what you would call what very strong action, uh, sharp reductions. Yes, uh, this is the sort of wheel we'd be facing if we moved ahead with some of the bills in Congress now, and the U.S. did that, and the rest of the world followed along with similar sorts of things. This is the sort of wheel we'd be facing if we actually adopted that policy. So, what do you say? Let's give it a spin. Sure. So in this spin, we've done as well as we can possibly do with this policy, and we're still getting one to two degrees of warming. So that's kind of the minimum we can expect if we are really aggressive to reduce greenhouse gases, and we get really lucky. And the odds of that are about what? About 15 or 18 percent of getting in that slice. So in other words, if you do the flip side of that, even with aggressive action, we're looking at better than an 80 percent chance that we're headed into a very uncomfortable zone. More than two degrees. And what would it mean if global average temperature went up by two degrees or three degrees centigrade? Uh, temperature increases of two to three degrees are thought to be the point where you'd have uh, ice-free Arctic and melting of the Greenland ice sheet or the West Antarctic ice sheet could raise sea levels by meters. And so that would be a very dramatic change. How fast that would happen uh, is unclear. But once we get to that level, we've really then started probably an irreversible process. So these numbers are all based on 
going forward from today. But we already have, what, seven, eight-tenths of a degree of centigrade warming in the atmosphere. That's correct. So what are the odds of pretty much keeping the climate regime that we've got today? Well, there's no chance of that. <laughs> Even if we stopped all emissions of greenhouse gases this minute, there's inertia built in the system that would continue to have warming of as much of a half a degree between now and 2050 uh, without any more increase in greenhouse gases. And there's no way the world is going to turn on a dime and we're all going to stop driving our cars and turning on our lights tomorrow. And so even with the most intense efforts to reduce greenhouse gases, there's going to be more emissions. Somebody listening to us might say, oh, okay, so like we have an 80% chance of things being really very difficult, even if we have aggressive policies. Why bother? What would you say to them? If we don't bother, it's going to be much, much worse. Uh, in this debate, there's this idea that we're already gone over a cliff or something, uh, and that leads to the frustration that, well, if we've gone over the cliff, why bother? Unfortunately, there's, there may be little cliffs, but there's many more cliffs to come. And so we're stuck with, I think, probably something on the order of two and a half to three or four degrees warming, even if we do almost everything we can. So we're going to have to be prepared for adapting to the climate change we see and really worry about, you know, risks to agriculture, to coastal systems, to severe storms, to increased hurricanes, to melting of ice. Uh, the risks are there, and I think they're, at this point, some of them are unavoidable. But we certainly want to move ahead as fast as we can to avoid these really catastrophic outcomes. How well do you sleep at night? Well, I'm an uh, you know, we scientists, we're uh, ducks, right? So this is an incredibly fascinating problem for us. So <laughs> it's an interesting research topic. And so... I guess I keep seeing it as that, and it's hard to even make it feel real to myself that we're really going to experience this. So I guess I still sleep, but uh, <laughs> I, I try not to think about what the real consequences are. John Riley is with the Climate Modeling Group at MIT. Thank you so much. Thank you. up, visitors risk snakes, scorpions, and scofflaws, but they can also see one of the most beautiful and untouched places on the planet. Trekking in the Darien Gap is just ahead on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In a moment, the hunt is on for lost oil and gas wells. First, here's this note on emerging science from Mary Bates. For centuries, perfumers have relied on a substance with the poetic name of ambergris to help fragrances stay on people's skin longer. But ambergris has less than poetic origins. It's nothing more than vomit from sperm whales. Now scientists are closing in on a synthetic alternative that will leave whales out of the perfume-making business. When whales consume sharp objects like seashells or squid beaks, their guts coat the items in a protective sticky substance. They regurgitate the waxy gray balls, and the gobs wash ashore, on coasts from the Bahamas to Australia, where harvesters manually collect them. Collecting ambergris is time-intensive, and there are fears that demand may encourage poaching of the endangered whales, which have intestines full of the stuff. But now, researchers from the University of British Columbia have identified a gene in balsam fir trees that could lead to the production of synthetic ambergris. The gene enables the fir tree to produce a compound called cis-abunol, which has properties similar to ambergris. 
scientists transferred the gene into yeast cells, which were then able to produce the compound quickly and efficiently. This technique could produce an ambergris alternative that's less expensive and more sustainable. And the fragrance industry is betting that ambergris by any other name will smell just as sweet. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Mary Bates. For more than 150 years, prospectors in the United States have drilled countless holes in the ground in search of oil and gas. Most of the resulting wells were sealed once they became unprofitable. But improperly sealed ones can lead to explosions and other hazards. With the gas rush underway in the Marcellus Shale in the eastern U.S., the Federal Department of Energy has made the search for so-called orphaned wells a high priority. From the radio show The Allegheny Front, Kate Malangowski has our story. At the Washington County Airport, a peculiar-looking helicopter is landing. It has two long poles branching out beneath each side, kind of like wings. After the propellers stop, Shane Sudden hops out of the helicopter and removes his helmet. As an operator, it's his job to make sure the data is being taken properly as he checks the screen from the cockpit. Everyone good? No wind? Smooth? No birds? No other planes? Sudden is with Fugro Airborne Surveys, an international surveying group hired by the Department of Energy to look for abandoned wells in this part of Pennsylvania. The team will survey a portion of Washington County, where Marcellus shell drilling is expected to surge. He says the survey area is not very big. It's 290 kilometers in total lines, like length, so I think it's maybe three or four square miles. It's a lot of you just go in and then your tight turns and then fly right back and then another tight turn and fly back. The helicopter has special equipment mounted on long, white poles on either side. At the end of each pole is a white cylinder pointed at the ground. Inside, these canisters are essentially advanced metal detectors. They can pick up cars, natural metals like gold, or the metal casings found in abandoned oil and gas wells. Whenever the detector senses something magnetic, the data will be shown on a screen that Zedden is checking on during the flight. I'm just looking at the raw data of what I see, and if there's an anomaly down there, it'll spike. The Department of Energy has used this type of technology out west and is now piloting the flyovers in Pennsylvania. Rick Hammock is a scientist with the National Energy Technology Lab, and he's in charge of the flyover project. An abandoned well, if it's not properly plugged, provides a conduit for gases to come to the surface. These gases could be, of course, methane, natural gas, or, or something like radon. If wells aren't known, if you build a house over top of a well that's not sealed, the well itself can provide a conduit for a radon to come up and invade the basement or, or natural gas. The first natural gas well in Pennsylvania was drilled in 1859, but the industry wasn't regulated until 1956. That left almost a century's worth of wells drilled with little or no records of where they were located. It's estimated there are more than 100,000 of these so-called orphan wells sitting in Pennsylvania. Left untreated, Hammock says houses built on top of these wells can become explosive. Certainly Pennsylvania has a long experience with uh, houses that have exploded because of uh, gases that have accumulated in people's basements and, and have ignited. 
We're also learning brand new information this morning as crews work to find out what caused an explosion at this house in West Mifflin. The explosion happened in the basement of this home along Blueberry Drive and caused the ceiling. This to explosion that WTAU TV reported was actually caused by methane from an abandoned well. Fortunately, no one was home during this event, but others haven't been so lucky. Fred Baldessari is a former DEP geologist who specialized in abandoned wells. He's now a consultant who works on stray methane issues. On his laptop, he carries a PowerPoint about some of the most serious abandoned well events he's worked on. That used to be a two-story house, and it got in through the water well, got into the house, and accumulated. The resulting explosion was three fatalities. Everybody in the home was killed. Baldessari says that with the Marcellus boom, drillers are more vigilant than ever about finding out where these wells are. It's in their best interest, and oftentimes... Uh, They have farm line maps, which are old maps that are handed down through the different oil and gas companies that are maybe a little bit better than what the state has. But the state is keeping tabs on abandoned wells. Among those doing this is Kristen Carter of the Pennsylvania Geological Survey. At her Pittsburgh office, she leans over a table and points at a map. This is the heart of of what is the uh, Washington-Taylorstown field. It's a very um, historic large producing oil field that was developed in the early to mid 20th century. There are a lot of well permits here that start with the number nine. Meaning any well on the map that begins with nine are orphan wells. There are dozens of dots like this on the map. One problem with looking for wells, Carter says, is a lot of the metal casings used to detect these wells are gone. Anecdotally, we know that people removed as much steel as they could from the ground because they were using it for other things, the war effort and and whatnot. With the influx of drillers in the Marcellus Shale, there's even more of a need to locate these wells, hence the helicopter. Again, Rick Hammack of the National Energy Technology Lab. Chances are in, in years to come, there will be Marcellus development in these areas, but we will already have flown and we will know where the wells are by the time development reaches these areas. Once they're finished surveying, The data will be synced with video recordings taken from the helicopter, and results of this testing will be available after a three-month analysis. Meanwhile, back at the Washington County Airport, Sutton returns to the helicopter for another flight. It's time to zigzag across the county again, looking for more orphan wells. I'm Kate Melangowski. Our story on orphan wells comes to us from the radio show The Allegheny Front. century ago, the United States led an effort to build a road all the way from Canada to the tip of South America, called the Pan American Highway. But where South America joined Central America, the road builders ran into a roadblock, the Darien Gap. This untracked stretch of virgin forest between Colombia and Panama is now a haven for paramilitary groups and drug smugglers. Every year, a few daring trekkers try to cross the forest, drawn by its pristine ecology and a sense of danger. One of them is Jenny Aaron Smith, who recently wrote about her journey into the Darien Gap in the New Yorker magazine, and she joins us from Columbia. Welcome to Living on Earth. Hi, Steve. Thank you. Jenny, you'd think that that Pan-American Highway would have made it all the way from the bottom of South America to the Yukon and Canada. What happened, and, and how has this land remained undeveloped all this time? You know, this is a mountainous region, but also has a lot of wetlands. 
And in the 1950s, when support from the Pan American Highway was really high in the United States, they tried to determine whether or not there's solid ground to build on, and there just wasn't. So it was ceased out of engineering concerns originally. But then what happened was in the United States, especially you had new environmental laws passed that bore on on places like the Darien region of Panama. And so the biological importance of this pretty much virgin rainforest caused the Sierra Club to sue the U.S. Highway Administration to stop construction. And so construction stopped and, um, you know, there'd been talk through the 90s to continue building the Pan American Highway to finally finish this last piece. But the Colombian conflict prevented that from happening. Now, you're not the first, obviously, to travel in this area. There is a rich history of people going into the Darien Gap and, in fact, trying to cross it to get all the way from uh, Colombia to Panama. Tell me a bit about that history. Yeah, in the 1960s, the Darien Gap was seen as a challenge for automobile companies because, of course, this was the part of the road that didn't exist, that had yet to be built. Um, So they tested their cars in the Darien Gap. Sometimes some of the expeditions took like more than two years as they hacked apart trees and uh, cut trails and, and floated, in some cases, their Range Rovers and Jeeps. And then for other people, it became sort of a personal spiritual quest. I know that the writer Wade Davis had done it, and and there are many others. But then in the 90s and the early 2000s, it became a temptation for danger seekers. And so there was one famous case of a, a journalist named Robert Young Pelton who attempted to cross the gap with two backpacking kids, really, he had just met, um, and all three were kidnapped. And that really did a lot to dry up not just tourism in the gap, but also science and the presence of foreigners, period. So who crosses the Darien Gap these days? <laughs> well, right now, it's very interesting. There's, um, there's a profusion of illegal immigrants, many of them starting in Asia or even Africa. Asia? Asia, yeah. For some re- A couple years ago, the Colombian authorities started discovering groups of Nepalese in the Darien. You know, the photographer for The New Yorker talked to one of the coyotes involved in this on the Colombian side, and he said that the Nepalese were great crossers because the mountains were not daunting to them. I imagine not. They're tough as nails. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's the goal? I mean, Panama is, is Valhalla? The ultimate goal is the United States. So this is one, one land crossing that allows them to get by sea to South America and then overland into Central America and then hopefully hopefully the United States. Hey, Jenny, tell me about your trip, some highlights and where you started, and, and how did you travel? So the plan was to edge our way up the coastal towns to the border with Panama, dipping at least once into the interior. The plan was to attempt to get into a, a national park called Los Catillos National Park, which has been closed to the public since 1996. Los Catillos is a really big and splendid park, and it's a, it's a shame that it's closed. And it's it almost exactly fits the original route of the Pan American Highway, so that if the Pan American Highway were to be built, it would cruise right through Los Catillos. So that was the plan. What happened is that in a number of circumstances, we were foiled by rivers that would rise without warning. You know, in, in the Darien region, when the river's high, you simply can't cross. We were traveling on foot most of the time or on animals, on donkeys or horses. It's really the only way. Now, these days, who is living in the forest? Well, 
you have three basic groups of people living in the forest. You have descendants of African slaves who escaped Spanish slaving ships in the 16th century, if you can imagine, and have effectively lived in this region ever since. They, in many cases, have more claim to the territory than, uh, than several of the indigenous groups who were historically nomadic, but who also live in the Darien Gap. And then you have a class of Colombian settlers who are attracted to the Darien Gap for different reasons, but some of them are ideological. They're sort of going off the grid. Now, you wrote about some interesting characters in your time there. Uh, tell me about Ruthie. Oh, what a lovely woman. This was a lady who lived in a town called San Pacho, completely cut off. She had arrived there in the 90s or early 2000s from Medellin when Medellin was, you know, suffering pretty high levels of violence and a lot of people wanted to escape. And she had a dream of a plot of land uh, and she had six children at the time. And she brought them to live in this small town, which is served only by a single merchant boat that comes once a week, if it comes. And they eked out a very, very tough living in this town where she now owns a general store and is sort of a den mother to many. One of the complications of the Darien Gap is that there's no real state or governmental presence. This has provided a big opportunity for drug traffickers and gangs. So the town of San Pacho, where Ruthie lives, is essentially governed by paramilitary thugs. And one of Ruthie's daughters, she had, you know, the six kids, she had now five surviving. One of her daughters had been killed by the paramilitaries. Um, and she was very hesitant to talk about it when we came back to her and asked about it. So there was a sense of, you know, people who had come to this place to be free of government, to be free of, of the state of urban life. But at the same time, they paid a very heavy price because what substituted for government were armed gangs and you had no recourse against them. Jenny, when did you feel that you were in danger? Well, I, I didn't actually feel that I was in, in great danger through this trip because I had a very good guide a young Colombian guy who brings groups of people 10 or 12 times a year into this region out of a nearly patriotic desire to show it to them. Colombians these days are very eager to see parts of their country that have been blocked to them because of the conflict. And so he has a lot of takers and he knows every cow path in this region. So I seldom felt in danger when I was with him. And he actually knows the paramilitaries. They're quite familiar with him and his, his tour groups, and they let him pass. Without him, I, I can imagine that I, I probably would have, been, would have been terrified. So the Daring Gap is a destination for adventurers. But uh, as the opposition of the Sierra Club to the Pan-American Highway shows, the ecology uh, has to hold some amazing biodiversity. Tell me a bit about that. The interesting thing about the Daring Gap is that this was an almost entirely unstudied area that was, because of its unique geography, because it, was, it had risen from below sea level more than once, it had isolated various species, and it was something of a, a laboratory for evolution. And that thousands of species remained to be discovered, and you know many of the known species remained to be studied. So it was something of an ecological paradise. And Large scientific institutions like the Smithsonian, they set up offices in Colombia to study the Colombian side of the gap. So it was hugely attractive to ecologists and biologists in the 1970s and 1980s. Later on, when the gap became you know, a refuge for armed combatants like the FARC and the paramilitaries, that was when science 
sort of dried up. So things slowed down, but now, as I understand it, some of the braver Colombian researchers are beginning to come into the gap and, and learn about the species that live there. How's that research progressing? I think that's one of the most inspiring things that I discovered was that young and brave Colombians are willing to go in and do the type of long-term biological surveys that are needed in this region. There are international groups that will come in for a few days, for maybe a couple weeks. But really, the studies in which somebody has to live, for example, in the Los Catillos National Park and track a species for months on end, that's really being left to young Colombians. I met a number of people in their 20s who have carried out long-term research projects in the gap, and some of them don't even have their undergraduate degrees yet. So they are bravely filling the hole that's been left by the large scientific institutions. While you were in the Darien Gap, there was Mm -hmm. a moment, there was Mm -hmm. a moment that brought it all together for you. What was that moment? And can you describe it for me now? I mean, the moment that brought it all together for me was when I had gone into the forest with Sergio, the guide, and we were looking for a place to bathe because there was no water in town. And we hit upon a troop of maybe 12 or 15 cotton-top tamarinds, you know, or it's a species of primate. They're kind of little, and they've got these beautiful, funny white crests and little prune-like faces. And, you know, we encountered a, a troop of them drinking water. I almost felt like I was violating their privacy as I, <laughs> as I watched them. And then something like an hour later, as we exited this beautiful forest that could sustain these endangered primates, you know, we were greeted by effectively a a paramilitary, a thug, who wanted to know what we'd been doing there. So I thought that that was somewhat something of the problem of being in the Darien Gap. You have this tremendous ecological treasure, but look what you have to go through to get to it. (laughs) Jenny Aaron Smith's article about her journey into the Darien Gap is in The New Yorker. Thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Coming up, when nature acts like a rowdy relative. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Many of us look to the natural world for clues to living a more harmonious, sustainable life. For instance, we aspire to those traits in animals we value, the wisdom of the owl, the noble bearing of the eagle, the grace of a swan. But producer Guy Hand wonders what nature is trying to teach us when it starts acting like some pushy, poorly socialized uncle. You know, the one with a loud voice who moves in uninvited and threatens to eat everything in sight. Ah, it's springtime in the Rockies, when a black-billed magpie's thoughts turn to love. And as you can hear, that's a noisy time of year. There's the courting, nest-building, egg-laying, followed by the defending of the new family against every dog, cat, raccoon, garden tool, lawn chair, and child in its territory. 
All of it accompanied by the magpie's call, which is not exactly the bird world's sweetest. Add to that a few other disconcerting traits, and magpies plunge pretty much to the bottom of the list of birds we Westerners love. I don't know anybody that likes magpies. To wake up every morning to screeching magpies. I'm not sure I would hate them as much if it weren't for the fact that so many other people seem to hate them. We're fighting a war offense. War against who? Against birds. Okay, that last bit is from the Hitchcock movie, The Birds, but it captures the mood. In Bodega Bay early this morning, a large flock of crows attacked a group of children who were leaving... Crows, who play a starring role in the birds, are related to magpies and both belong to a whole family of unpopular birds. Kevin McGowan of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Well, the family Corvidae encompasses about 100 species, more or less. About half of them are crows and ravens, the big black guys. And then the other half are things like uh, the jays and the magpies. McGowan believes that our dislike of the Corvid family is rooted in European history. A lot of cultures around the world actually like crows and ravens and revere them as you know, part of their creator myth and things like that. But in, in Europe and in Western European society that's, that's influenced North America a lot, they tend to have a bad reputation. They're birds of ill omen. Um, they're birds of bad luck and disease and things like that. And basically that comes from the fact, I think, that uh, there were no vultures in Europe and that it was the crows and ravens and magpies that were the scavengers. After a big battle or a nasty plague, the corvids had the unsavory habit of swooping down on fallen victims and pecking their eyes out. Then to add to that, the crows and ravens at least are black. And that, again, was a negative sort of association for Western European thought, as black as he is the color of evil and all that sort of thing. Think Edgar Allan Poe. Take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. A century ago, magpies had a bounty on their heads. 150,000 were killed for cash in Idaho alone. Today, our cultural distaste for corvids is still codified in American law. The Migratory Bird Treaty Act only protects magpies, crows, and a few other unloved birds if they reform their evil ways. According to Rex Salabanks of Idaho Fish and Game, it's legal to control them if they peck at your screen door, eat Fifi's dog food, go for the cherry tree. Or, and this is the interesting part, when concentrated in such numbers and manner as to constitute a health hazard or other nuisance. And uh, the main way that you can control them, obviously, is to shoot them. You're not supposed to blast magpies within city limits, but other than that, the law is loose. So it's kind of... Like, what well, does it have that look in its eye, you know? <laughs> the, the, like, it's up to no good and it's about to do something uh, that's bad. Some people would say it always has that <laughs> look in its eye. Hear, Hear that? That was a rooster. That was a pheasant rooster. He was right over there. J.D. and his black lab are walking through his hunting preserve in southern Idaho. Did you hear that rooster? Yeah. But there was one in, right over here and there's one over there. There's just a tremendous amount of pheasants here and we have a lot of quail and we have lots of ducks here. We have geese that nest here. There's lots of wild birds though here too. There's killdeer, red-winged blackbirds, herons. JD loves birds, just not magpies. 
Although various magpie species can be found in numerous parts of the world, the American magpie lives exclusively in the western U.S. And this expanse of high desert has the densest concentration of magpies on Earth. J.D. thinks that density threatens his other birds. Look at the baby ducks. See them in the water there? Yeah. There's three baby ducks there. Now, magpies will go after them if they're on land. They'll just wait until those eggs or babies just get right, and then they'll swoop down on them and eat them up. That's all they do. That's why he's carrying a 12-gauge shotgun, just in case he catches a magpie in the act of raiding a game bird's nest. And it's not just the act of depredation that bothers J.D. and plenty of other people. It's the seemingly devious way magpies kill other birds. Yeah, they usually travel in groups, and I've seen them where, like, if you have a bunch of quail and they've got their little babies, one or two of the birds will distract the quail, the adults, and then another two magpies will come in behind and swoop down and pick up the the baby quail. They'll team hunt sort of like a pack of coyotes or wolves. A few minutes later, J.D. spots a magpie in the act. Got him! first magpie. He picks up the limp bird and holds it hanging by the tail. They're a pretty bird. I mean, they're handsome. They're always dressed in a tuxedo and ready to party. Magpie A bird on a wire Am I Magpies are iridescent black and blue and creamy white with a long, showy tail. By Corvid standards, they are beautiful birds. But still, people think they look flat-out evil. And magpies don't mind taking that dark side into town. Look, there's one right there. Right there, there's a magpie nest. Do you see it? Right by our porch. My neighbors, Dave Peterson and his wife, Mary Lou Taylor, live in Idaho's biggest city, Boise, where they're worried the magpies are taking over. Dave and Mary Lou count six magpie nests from where they stand in their backyard. So maybe Mary Lou's theory that there are... A few jillion more well, magpies uh, than last year. But, how, but how, I don't know if there are a few jillion more, but how many robin nests are in the same vicinity? Well, see, that's the thing that I think is that the magpies are driving out the other birds. Dave and Mary Lou are generally pretty sane, law-abiding citizens, but magpies have got them fantasizing revenge. So Mary Lou wants to start a magpie eradication program, and she has some real clever ideas for uh, getting rid of these magpie nests, I might add. What are they? Well, her best idea is to have me hone up on my archery skills and then get a uh, flaming arrow and shoot it into the magpie nests. We checked with the uh, fire department, and they frown upon this. Neither Dave and Mary Lou are serious about their eradication program, but plenty of others are. People routinely shotgun magpie nests, pull them out of trees, light them on fire, or grab the eggs and crush them. Get yourselves guns and wipe them off the face of the earth. (laughs) That would hardly be possible. Why not, Mrs. Bundy? Because there are 8,650 species of birds in the world today, Mr. Carter. The five continents of the world... Kill them all, get rid of them, messy animals. ...probably contain more than 100 billion birds. It's the end of the world. Yeah, that's from the birds, too. My point being that it's really hard to untangle fable, in this case film, from scientific fact when it comes to magpies, corvids, and, well, nature in general. 
Kevin McGowan of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology says all this magpie-directed malevolence is misplaced. Partly it's because some of the things that we see them do we don't like, and we don't have a sense of how important that is to the whole grand scheme of things. So we see them come in and take a robin nest, you know, eat the babies, and we're all upset by that, and we think of them as these nasty thieves kind of thing. Well, in fact, they're not thieves. They're, they're just trying to raise their own young. In fact, one study found that songbird populations actually increased as the number of magpies grew in the area. McGowan believes we label magpies and other corvids as wanton killers simply because they are big, obvious birds, and when they do something we find distasteful, we notice it, whereas lots of unexpected predators in nature sneak by unnoticed. As studies recently have been putting cameras on bird nests and seeing who it is that's actually coming in and eating those eggs and and babies, what we're finding is it's predominantly squirrels. Squirrels? And McGowan says nest cams have caught another unlikely suspect. Deer eat a lot of eggs and nestlings of ground-nesting birds. I tell you, I didn't expect that. But it's not just a question of them accidentally breaking eggs as they're cropping grass either. There's video of them actually chasing down little fledglings that are trying to run away from the nest and grabbing them and, and gulping them down. Hiya, Bambi! Bambi too? Watch what I can do! Scientists say magpies are way down the list of animals that eat baby birds. But like it or not, our view of nature is informed not only by biology, but by everything from Beowulf and the Bible to the birds and Bambi. We try to understand nature, like everything else, through stories. We cast animals in the roles of hero and villain, often unconsciously, then push them off on a narrative adventure we hope will end in just, morally satisfying ways. When nature doesn't follow the script, we often react with anger or fear. Are the birds going to eat us, Mommy? Well, maybe we're all getting a little carried away by this. Watching a magpie pull a baby bird out of its nest, even when we tell ourselves it's part of nature, is nevertheless unsettling. Why are they doing this? It whispers the possibility of a cold, uncaring universe, a natural world less teacher than tormentor. So we often try to rewrite the script to save the baby bird and sentence the murderous magpie to death. They'll be all around here. Yeah, they'll be down. Some will be on the gravestones. Some will be right here pecking at the magpie. Chuck Trost has spent 20 years trying to read nature's story from a magpie's perspective. A retired professor of ornithology at Idaho State University, he's the nation's leading expert on magpies. And when he asked me to meet him in a cemetery so he can perform a magpie funeral, I'm glad to hear I'm not to play the role of the dearly departed. All right, well, I've got a dead magpie here, and uh, and I just put it on the ground in the cemetery, and uh, we're going to go back and sit in the car and see what happens. Uh, What I predict will happen is that a magpie will notice it and start calling. And the effect of that is it draws other magpies in. Magpies will come in from across the river and all around here, and, uh, and they'll be in the trees, and they'll be down looking at this dead magpie. So it's kind of an intense thing that goes on for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and then they leave. 
Trost hopes his so-called magpie funeral will give me a taste of what he's discovered in his two decades of study, that magpies are surprisingly intelligent, complex creatures. He says they have a well-defined social hierarchy. They're monogamous, but they also allow for divorce. They'll defend their chicks against animals many times their own size, and they might even have a sense of humor. I've seen a Merlin uh, actually attacking magpies, a flock of magpies, and you just have to laugh to watch it because the magpies would dive into a bush and the Merlin would take off and start to leave and one of them would chase it. And they'd turn around and drive that magpie right into the bush again. And it, it's happened like 10 times, over and over again. Uh, and I think they were just, you know, they're using this Merlin to show off. So fascinating things you can see if you just have enough patience to watch. Tross thinks we'd all learn to love magpies if we were patient enough to watch them for a while. As we talk, magpies gather in the trees above the dead bird, calling, then begin gliding down and gathering around the corpse itself. One tentatively pulls at the tail, and when there's no response, backs off and simply stands there. Trost has an explanation for all this. It's probably trying to see what killed it. And mostly, I think what it is, they're trying to see who it is, because they know each other. Magpies know each other. And whenever there's a dead magpie, that means there's an opening in the social system. And if you're a submissive magpie, you can move up one notch. As a scientist, Truss can't speculate on the magpie's capacity to mourn. But watching these birds standing there among the gravestones, dressed in funereal black-and-white plumage, I can't help but wonder if there's some kind of spiritual spark glowing in those complicated little corvid skulls. If we're so quick to assign the worst human traits to magpies, can't we allow them just a little room for reverential reflection? It seems only fair. Who's to say magpies aren't contemplating the nature of life and death like us? Maybe they're just a little noisier about it. For Living on Earth, I'm Guy Hand. Ornithology happens to be my avocation. Birds are not aggressive creatures, miss. They bring beauty into the world. It is mankind, rather, who insists upon making it difficult for life to exist upon this planet. Now, if it were not for birds... you don't seem to understand. This young lady said there was an attack on the school. Impossible. The next Living on Earth, fighting climate change and the race against time to save the tropical forest in Africa. There is a thing called risk and return. And that risk and return is both financial and, and environmental. If we wait until all the rules are in place, at least this forest, it'll be too late. The promise of red, reducing deforestation and degradation next time on Living on Earth. Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation, Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Alicia Zhuang, Helen Palmer, Hansi Rutsch, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Jennifer Marquis, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lierstein composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. Stonyfield, working to produce healthy food for a healthy planet. Stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and the Town Creek Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.